From 2003 Media, I'm Campbell Barron, and this is The Ones Who Succeed. Welcome to the program. Hello. Hi there. Albert, how are you? Doing well. How about yourself? I'm good. I appreciate your time. No, happy to. Um, so before we start, I think my, my pre-interview question is, um, how has your 2020 lockdown been? Uh, you know, I belong to the sort of small but, um, you know, very fortunate group of people for whom this has brought a lot of positive changes. And I recognize that that's been a really terrible situation for a great many people and come at great cost of, of, of human life. Um, Today on the show, I'm thrilled to have a conversation with Albert Wenger. Albert is a venture capitalist, a startup investor, but not just any venture capitalist. Albert is a partner at Union Square Ventures, which is a top-tier venture firm with early investments in companies like Twitter, Etsy, Duolingo, Tumblr, Indeed, and Twillo, to name a few. Albert has quite the keen eye for spotting early-stage startups, having scouted Twillo, Etsy, and MongoDB in the early days. And his thoughts and ideas regarding all things tech, startups, investing, climate change, and even education are all expressed through his blog Continuations, which is a blog I highly recommend, by the way. And just a side note, Albert and I talk quite a lot about rethinking the way we learn, a topic I am quite interested in. Needless to say, Albert, born in Germany, now based in New York, joined this program via Zoom to discuss his entry point into the world of startups and venture investing, how COVID has shifted the venture landscape, and of course, why COVID is forcing us to rethink our education system. That's all coming up. This is The Ones Who Succeed. I'm Campbell Barron. My conversation with Albert Wenger, starts now. Now, if you can introduce yourself, who are you and what do you do? So I'm Albert Wenger. I'm a partner at Unisco Ventures uh, in New York, and I invest in startups. And you are German, correct? I was born in Germany and I grew up there and uh, I'm now a dual citizen and I've lived actually longer in the U.S. than I've lived in Germany. Fair enough. And how did you end up in the United States? Why did you make the jump? What's your origin story? Yeah, so uh, a very, very long time ago, my dad sort of said, you know, you should really spend some time in other places. And, you know, I spent like a week in France and I spent a week in England and then I decided I should spend a year in the U.S., and I wound up spending a year in Rochester, Minnesota. And I really kind of fell in love with the U.S. And I went back to Germany. I finished my school there and I came here for college. But that initial spark was my year in Rochester, Minnesota. Now, how do you go from graduating college in the U.S. to getting into venture? Because you said you came here quite a while ago. So fill me in on those gap years. Yeah, it's a, I took a very circuitous route. Basically, between college and graduate school, I worked in management consulting for a number of years. And while I was in graduate school at MIT, I you know was working always on that intersection uh, between information technology and economics. It was at this point, we're now talking, it's like 95, 96, and I'm finished with my uh, general exams. I'm starting to work on my dissertation and this internet thing is taking off. And I Mm -hmm. sort of have this realization that I'm working on this document that three people will ever read, my thesis advisors, and, and even that's slightly questionable. And in the meantime, like all these massive changes are happening in the world. And so I basically wound up starting a company. I wound up finishing my dissertation that probably wasn't good for either the dissertation or the company. And the thing I realized with the company, which was an early internet healthcare company, was that I really loved the 
process of early stage companies and uh, what they need to do and get off the ground, but I am not a good operator. And so I decided, well, if I want to work with early stage companies and not be an operator, my only other choice is to be an investor. And from that realization, which I had sort of in basically call it 97-ish, to my becoming a part of USCO Venture was a 10-year journey of false starts, you know, racing my own vehicle at the height of the bubble, having the bubble burst shortly thereafter, trying to raise a fund with my now partner Brad in 2001 in the midst of the nuclear winter and not mm-hmm. being able to get that done. And it was a, it was quite the quite the journey of uh, of false starts, but I knew I had figured out that that's the thing I really wanted to do, and so I was fortunate enough to through various ways of being able to stick with it. And then I was very fortunate that when Brad and Fred had started Unisquare Ventures, one of the early things they looked at was something called Delicious, and I spent some time with Joshua Schechter and uh, wound up becoming the president of Delicious. And that was a very, very short ride after nine months of the company's existence. Yahoo bought it. And I didn't have to go along with the acquisition. So I started hanging out at the USB office. But yeah, it definitely is a story of if at first you don't succeed, try again. You're based in Union Square Ventures is based in New York. You specifically are based in New York, correct? Well, at the moment, we're all based wherever we want to be, and that's likely an uh, inherent ingredient of the future of the world, right? That certain things are no longer as geographically tied as they used to be. But yes, the firm does maintain an office in New York, and will continue to do so, and I will continue to um, be at that office once in a while. And when you say once in a while, does that mean New York will no longer be your primary residence? Well, I will maintain my primary residence in New York City. I love New York City, and it's a great city, and it's going to be a somewhat different city, but I think a a vibrant city uh, under any circumstance. But it just means I may spend more time up at the farm or, you know, in the mountains or somewhere else. Pre-COVID, the New York City startup ecosystem was dramatically booming and, and quite frankly on the rise. San Francisco has historically kind of been the, the major, major startup hub in the U.S., but there are other cities that are starting to rival it, especially now. But New York was one of them. And then COVID happened and, and you know, there's a really big question mark there. From, from, the startup, from a startup perspective and a startup ecosystem like New York, how have you seen the city evolve? I take it you're not there right now, but I, I'm sure you've... You you're noticing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that I've long been of the opinion that a big thrust of the internet was to make many more locations viable for startups. And obviously, I think that's going to be even more the case now that companies, more and more companies realize that they really don't need to put everybody into an office all day, every day. I think that the overall way I think about the ecosystem is that the startup ecosystem is so much larger than any one city. The real startup ecosystem today is online. It's all the knowledge that's being shared in writing, in podcasts, on YouTube, on Twitter. It's the networks that people create on LinkedIn and and on GitHub and, you know, other services like Behance. So the ability and the willingness to build great teams has everything to do with where you're willing to go to find the right talent. And I think people's imagination of what that meant was, you know, somewhat narrow um, for historic reasons, for historic reasons. But I think today, I, I believe that talent is global accessible and it's becoming ever more important 
that you have the right talent working on what you're doing rather than them being in a specific geography. So I think this whole like idea of the sort of geography as destiny and the idea that you had to be in Silicon Valley to be successful, I think that was always a bit of a temporary thing. And so I'm not surprised to see very large startups now come from completely different geographies. And of course, very large startups will come also from places like India and China and so forth. Right. And Europe. Yeah, uh, absolutely. How, how do you look at some of the changes that we're seeing with COVID, right? So for example, I take it that post-pandemic vaccine cure, whatever happens, we won't be walking around wearing masks like we do now. However, I, I would assume that a large percentage of the workforce will not return to an office. And so that would be a permanent change. What changes do you see in regards to how we work or just post-pandemic life um, that you think will just stick around? Well, I think there are two areas that we haven't talked about that have seen fairly dramatic changes that I think will continue. And again, in both of these areas, healthcare and education, these are changes that were already happening to a degree, but have been massively accelerated. So if you think about telehealth, it was definitely happening. There were a lot of companies, including some in our portfolio, some already publicly traded, but the amount of sort of telehealth consults relative to in-person consults has shot up dramatically. And that's, you know, a very welcome, I think, change and welcome acceleration. In learning, I think it's it's more complicated because uh, the changes there are painful for a lot of people, but I think ultimately are going to be incredibly powerful. And that's largely an understanding that brick and mortar institutions are not core necessarily in their, certainly not in their existing configuration to the future of learning. Mm-hmm. And that much learning can take place in completely new configurations. That's not just online, that can be in person, but in person can be small groups like pods of students. You know, we took our kids out of school when our twins were 12 years old and our youngest was 10. And they're all now in college, but we homeschooled them all through high school. Did you really? Wow. And so, you know, there are a lot of changes coming that this crisis has accelerated. And for some people, obviously, again, those changes are incredibly painful because, you know, if you have to, if you have a job that you can't do from home, or if you have very young children and you can do your job at three years from home, but you also need now to take care of your children who previously were in school. I understand that this is all incredibly painful for people, but I think it's also laying bare that you know, much of what was happening in school wasn't in fact learning, it was babysitting. And that is in fact possible to imagine a new world where those two things aren't, you know, sort of bundled together the way they were with school. Now, this is extremely interesting. One of the the topics that fascinates me the most is this idea of, you know, the coming disruption of education. I've said for quite a while that I think the The school system is quite archaic. But thinking that in 2018, 2019, it didn't seem that clear that such rapid change would happen so quickly. And then you hit COVID comes along and it's essentially an accelerant. And one of the things that it seems like it's accelerating is the disruption of education. But it is also a little difficult to look at this from the macro because we're still in it and it's not clear what the school system and education will will look like in a year, in two years, in five years, in 10 years, etc. But what specifically, since you mentioned it, I figured I would bring it up. What specifically about the school system and, and, and about education as a whole, in your mind, was due for disruption? All right, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with Albert Wenger. Stick with us. 
Welcome back to The Ones Who Succeed. I'm Campbell Barron, and I'm joined by Union Square venture partner Albert Wenger. What specifically about the school system and, and, and about education as a whole, in your mind, was due for disruption? Well, the system we have is an industrial age system, the K through 12 system. And the higher education system is even like a, almost like a pre-industrial uh, system. So these are really, really old systems. And if you think about it, it makes very little sense to sort kids by manufacturing date. By the way, that's not my expression. That is, oh, you know, yeah, so so that's from a famous TED talk about sort of education and how education is is sort of flawed at the moment. But it, it makes no sense, for example, to put twenty, thirty, maybe even more twelve year olds in a room together. It's completely artificial. It never happens again before or after. You know, when you go in the workplace, not everybody is the same age. It's just a completely artificially constructed situation, and it leads to all sorts of dysfunctions. First of all, obviously. People are at very different levels in any one subject. Yeah? And so the kids who are more advanced are bored, and the kids who are a little behind are terrified or, or apathetic because they think they won't ever understand it. And it also leads to a sort of social dysfunction where you, <clears throat> you, know, you either want to excessively fit in or you want to excessively stand out or you have clicks. So a lot of this uh, is, is highly artificial, and it is, was created to essentially create a standardized product. And much of the standardized product is about uh, repeatable performance in an industrial system. And by industrial, I don't just mean like manufacturing. I also mean the services industries. Like you don't really want creative employees. And so one of the things that the system does, it, it trains creativity and curiosity out of people. You know, it's like, you know, you don't get to ask, you know, like, how about if we do it this way or this other way around? Like this sort of one way to answer the question. And, you know, you check the box this way and not that way. And you go to the bathroom when you've asked for a hall pass and you, you know, there's a myriad ways. And, and this is well documented. So young children, very young children are have extraordinary amount of natural curiosity. They ask questions all the time. In fact, up to hundreds of questions a day. And then by the time people graduated from high school, most People have lost all sense of wonder, all sense of curiosity, all interest in wanting to be creative and learn things on their own. A few people manage to maintain it, but it is the minority. So instead of fostering this natural curiosity and creativity, we basically smother it out of people. And we do that on purpose because that is what provides a standardized product that can then function in the industrial system. So I think once you see school through that lens, you will see that the existing institution was purpose-built for a specific time period that we're no longer in. Now, this is very fascinating because I've had conversations about education with a wide range of people, some of them in the world of startups, some of them not. And one of the, the key common threads is essentially this idea that, well, I wasn't taught this in school. I wasn't taught that in school. This I learned in school. I don't use in life. This I learned in school. I don't use in life. But it sounds like what you're really referring to is the fundamental ideology in regards to how school is set up from a structural perspective. Oh, absolutely. Yes. So talk a little bit about that, because I'm 100% in agreement with you on this. And I've done quite a bit of reading and talked to many education people who have very interesting ideas in regards to this. But the common argument for the current education system is we just don't have this this idea of learning at your own pace or separating kids, not by age, but by skill set, etc. We just don't have the resources. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think the resource argument was there was a time when that was a perfectly valid argument, right? 
I want to connect this up to higher ed for a moment too. Yeah. So if you think about higher ed as you know being two year at minimum, but often four year college programs, right? Well, the model for those schools has been the same more or less for 300 plus years. 300 years ago, you wanted to hear somebody speak, you had to be in the same room at the same time. You mm -hmm. wanted to read a book, you had to be in the library with the one copy of the book. And so obviously it made sense to bring all the students to one place. Also, transportation was really difficult and arduous. So it made sense to bring people to one place, have them there for an extended period of time and get it all over with in sort of one go. But none of these conditions are true anymore. Similarly, there was a time when the only way to explain the Pythagorean theorem to kids, a classroom of kids, would be to put them in a classroom and have somebody draw it on the whiteboard and label it and explain it. Well, today I can create a beautiful interactive, not just video, an interactive system where you can change the length of you know, one side of the triangle. You can see how you know, the, the length of the other sides change and you can see how the area changes and you, know, you can play around with all that yourself interactively without you know, any other human there. And you know, we could easily now, from a resource perspective, invert the model where if you really get stuck, you know, you can go ask a human and also where the human can play totally different roles, which have to be more roles about the kind of things you like to discuss with other humans, you know, like your feelings, for example, or things you're either anxious about or excited about or looking forward to, you know. So the resource point was a valid point at some time in the past. Mm -hmm. You are talking about the way the internet could play a role in the disruption of education. But I'm curious to hear your thoughts on some of the content gaps, let's say, in regards to, to the system. We touched on the structure, and I really want to talk a little bit about some of the content gaps. What key fundamental life skills do you think is just quite frankly not being taught or lacking in modern school systems? This is private, public, yeah, wherever well, country. I mean the most important one that's lacking is a word that's been so abused that it's become almost trite, but I think it's a crucial word, which is mindfulness. So you can go through all of, you know, in most school districts, through all of K through 12 and even higher ed without ever being asked to develop a mindfulness practice of your own. Uh, and so what do I mean by that? I, I mean, some kind of practice, whether that's yoga or meditation or breathing or running or some combination of the above that helps you control your brain. And by control your brain, I don't mean become a robot. But what I mean is, you know, when you experience emotion, to be able to experience that emotion and to be able to sit with that emotion, but not let that emotion control your behavior. And that is a crucial, crucial human capability that I think is one of the defining things that sets humans apart from animals, for example, where we can have this ability to have a separate part of our brain that can observe our emotional state and that can sit with that emotional state, let it pass through us, and then get back to making a decision that's not based on a momentary emotion hijack. This is a crucial unlock, if you so want, for humans. And yet, we're not taught it. You may hear about it sort of in a class, but we have physical education, you know, like you're supposed to train your body. That's a standard part of education. You know, everybody's supposed to learn some amount of history. Everybody's supposed to learn some amount of math. And, and then you have this incredibly, incredibly, insanely important thing that is barely talked about, if at all. 
that's a huge gap in the content, as you called it. I very much agree. I've been doing morning meditation, I think, for the past two years now. I think I missed a couple days. And I can 100% see what you're saying there and the immense benefits. And just you, I find you feel better and kind of understanding a little bit more about yourself. I think as meditation apps and as the content becomes more widely available, I, I agree with you. I hope that becomes more ingrained into kind of you know K through 12 content at least. But I want to touch on higher education because they are really two different beasts. But before we, we get to that, what are your thoughts or how do you see COVID disrupting education? Is COVID even going to disrupt education? And what does an ideal education system look like to you? Well, I, I, I definitely think it's providing a major disruption because people are suddenly, you know, I, I, there, there was a meme that was going around, which I thought was quite funny, which was, you know, the prices for various subscriptions. There was like your Netflix subscription, you know, $12 or whatever, $20, $19 a month, your, you know, Spotify subscription, whatever, $15 a month, you know, your Harvard subscription, you know, $80,000 a year, you know, right. <laughs> so, so Yes, I think this is a very disruptive force, and I think it's accelerating a trend which had been happening before, which were people like, well, wait a second, I can just learn this stuff. It's kind of out there. It's edX, and it's YouTube, and maybe some paid services, and, and almost anything you want to learn, you can kind of learn now. So there's no doubt in my mind that COVID basically compressed, you know, a decade of change into, you know, a few months, more or less. The second part of your question is, what does an ideal learning system look like? I would call it a learning system, not an education system. I think it's a system where everybody on earth has access to humanities knowledge and has access to people when needed to help explain things that you still don't understand to provide community, communities of learners. These can be peers. My wife, Susan, and I have been longtime contributors to something called the University of the People, which is a U.S. accredited university that has 40,000 students now that is tuition-free. There's a small exam fee, very affordable fee per exam. And, you know, that's a hint what's possible, right? So many of the people who are instructors there are volunteers, but a lot of the instruction is actually peer-to-peer instruction. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there's a lot of online resources. So I believe the new system is being built. It's being built before our very eyes. And, you know, much as YouTube is full of awful, terrible things, it's also full of wonderful things. You know, if you think of a channel like Number File or Veritasium, there's, you know, extraordinary, well-explained, accessible knowledge there for anybody anywhere in the world. And then there's services, you know, in between. There's, you know, the Brilliance, the Skillshares, the Quizlets. Many of them are in our portfolio. Then there are many others. There's Khan Academy. So this learning system is being built. What's very important, though, is that we need a large-scale change that impacts all aspects of human life. And uh, we've talked a lot about education, which is rightly so, because it's such a core component. But we are past the industrial age, and the industrial age is the sum of many interlocking parts in society. There's a whole social contract that needs to change. And my wife and I have been long-standing proponents of the universal basic income. You know, like you need to be put in a position where you can learn. If you have to hold down two or three low-paying jobs where you're being scheduled by computer, you have no free time, you're exhausted, it doesn't matter if there's great learning content online. You're not going to be able to have the mental state and capacity to avail yourself of it. 
There's a book called Scarcity, which really looks into the impact on people's cognitive ability when you are in a precarious life situation. And it's basically as bad as drinking a fair bit of alcohol in terms of your you know, cognitive inhibition as a result of this. So the ideal learning system as a result isn't just content, it's also society that values learning and that creates the room and the, the in resources for individuals to dedicate more of their life to learning on an ongoing basis for that matter. Whenever someone will touch on, most people, I think, touch on the idea of the coming disruption of education, I think that higher education is, you know, firstly talked about. And K through 12 is potentially an afterthought. And so I'm glad we really touched on K through 12, which is the most formative years of education. But I also think, you know, higher education as a whole is probably seeing the clearest disruption at this point or potentially the loudest disruption because, you know, at least to me, it wouldn't really make sense to pay $80,000 a year for Zoom classes. And so you can make the argument pre-COVID that the $80,000 a year annual subscription is a combination of hype, but it's also a combination of supply and demand and everyone being on one campus, food, etc., you know, cutting the grass. Well, and, 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 and joining, you know, there's a signaling value and there's right. you know, joining a network and yeah, there are lots of things that were bundled into that price. All of the above. And now you have COVID where that network is, I mean, I find it very difficult, unless I'm having someone on the podcast, I find it difficult to network via Zoom. The core college experience seems to be gone. And so there's like a real question, which is the pre-K to 12 debate is like, okay, how can we change this learning system? How can we kind of make these more formative years? How can we improve this? And then the college debate, at least in my mind, is like, how do we not get ripped off? Like $80,000 a year is an outrageous price that, you know, I certainly couldn't just fork over right now without loans. And most people can't and is completely dividing the economy and, and sorting people into this buckets, valid and not valid, which isn't necessarily built on anything, but potentially hype and a name brand. And so the real question for me is like, what is the disruption that needs to take place for the university sector? Yeah, I, I think I think that's coming, right? I mean, that's on the way. And, you know, it, it's the old joke about how you go bankrupt, you know, very slowly if very slowly and then all at once. But, you know, I think we're going to see the same with this system. It's going to, you know, fray at the edges. And you see college bankruptcies now as a routine matter on schools just closing down. And a bunch of schools that were held up by, you know, students from abroad who were paying full fare, as that has dried up in part to immigration policy, you know, that has put some schools upside down. So I think we're we're going to see the system basically more or less collapse Obviously, some of the elite institutions will be more or less exempt from that for a fairly long time. So, you know, just as in in all sort of product categories, there's always some premium brands and the premium brands, you know, uh, command a premium just by virtue of how they've been branded. But there are other signs that this is happening, right? So you see companies like Google saying, look, we're not going to require for your degree. If you can show that you can do these things, we can hire you, right? It just, you know, and... We had gone in this direction where people were adding a four-year college degree for baristas. I mean, I'm only slightly exaggerating, right? But I mean, we were sort of artificially adding this as a requirement. And if you take, you know, a four-year marketing degree or a two-year marketing degree um, for most schools, it's sort of like the value of that is highly questionable for everybody involved, you know. And so as companies are starting to go, well, gee, we can just assess candidates directly based on other alternative forms of credentialing. In some areas, this is becoming much more common, like code. You can see somebody's code on GitHub design. You can see somebody's design 
on Behance or some other platform. This is going to happen in more and more areas. And it's also going to be the case that we are likely to head back to some notion of apprenticing somewhere, you know. So how highly formalized that is remains to be seen. But already today, there's a bit of a notion that, hey, you know, maybe you worked at this type of company and this type of company has a reputation for really training people in this field. And so the fact that you work there, we assume means you really know what you're doing. You know, which again, may or may not be always true, but certainly it's a different type of credential than saying you went to the school. And so we think, you, you know, you, you know what you're doing. I like the idea of being able to get a job based off of work you've done versus kind of a pay to play model, if you will. And, you know, Harvard, I am not questioning that it's probably an exceptional experience. It's just an exceptional experience limited to a small portion of people and with a price tag. So I think this is a really interesting education talk, and you can probably tell I could talk about this for a long time. But one of the other one of the other <laughs> it's things, a great that, topic. I can yeah, <laughs> it is. It is absolutely. And one of the other things, though, that I'm really interested in, um, that you seem to be interested in, is this hopefully disruption of fossil fuels and climate. And on your Twitter bio, you well, first of all on your blog continuations, you talk a lot about this. On Twitter, you talk a lot about this. You have the fire and earth emoji on your Twitter handle, which I think is a a healthy reminder. Yeah, it's the fire, the earth, and the hourglass. That says it all. Interview over. So I'm curious. I think the part that interests me about climate change is kind of how big of a problem it is, but how not simple, but just like how it seems like the answers are pretty much there and it's a politicized thing. But I'm also really interested in, in the idea from a venture perspective, because unlike education, where theoretically software could solve a lot of the problem, you can't really build a killer app that just you know, solve climate change. Coming up on The Ones Who Succeed, I continue my conversation with Albert Wenger. We'll be right back after this. This is The Ones Who Succeed. I'm Campbell Barron. Welcome back to the program, and I'm joined by Albert Wenger. Unlike education, where theoretically software could solve a lot of the problem, you can't really build a killer app that just you know, solves climate change. Well, I actually think that software will have a lot to do with getting on top of the climate crisis. We're doing this call over Zoom. You know, Zoom replaces a lot of travel. Uh, travel is a big emitter, Fair. especially commuting. So software will play a role here for sure. But, but taking a step back, I, I, I do feel like the climate crisis is obviously taking a bit of a backseat to the global pandemic, to the coronavirus, but it is in many ways a much more profound and problematic and existential crisis for humanity than this pandemic. The physics of the pandemic are such that you have a small virus, kind of very small, that makes it hard to filter it out of the air. But we you know, have developed over the last couple of decades a fairly sophisticated understanding of how a virus replicates, how it enters the body, what it does in the body, what we can do against it. Early on in this crisis, for instance, in March, I said, you know, try to make it through the fall because by the fall, we're going to start having antibody treatments. We now have antibody treatments. I'm also pretty optimistic that we're going to have vaccines. So this is a crisis that is global, but we have technology that's up to the task and can be deployed quite rapidly. Mm-hmm. The physics of the climate crisis, however, are completely daunting by comparison. So people don't realize this, but the excess heat that's being trapped in the Earth's atmosphere and in the oceans due to the greenhouse gases that we've emitted since the beginning of industrialization amounts to four 
nuclear bombs per second, every second, all day, every day. Now, if you picture for a moment that there were alien spaceships in orbit around Earth, and they would be dropping four nuclear warheads into the atmosphere every second, we would literally drop everything we're doing and be like, we have to get rid of those aliens. Those aliens are trying to kill us by overheating the Earth. I mean, yeah. they, it would be such an obvious conclusion, right? It would be, we've made two movies about it, Independence Day and whatever the second one was called. And it's not aliens. And it's not these bright explosions. It's just all the molecules in the air and in the oceans wiggling a little bit harder. So you can't see. But the amount of energy is just extraordinary. It's mind-boggling amounts of energy. And of course, that energy is going to go somewhere, right? And so it goes into hurricane events. It goes into heavy rainfall events. It goes into extreme temperature events. And so that physics is much more problematic because it's a lot harder to undo that physics. And the worst part of it is that there are certain tipping points that if we were to go past those tipping points, it would be the physics of going back to prior would be outside of our capability. So it is within our technological capability today to draw down CO2 at scale. And I'm not talking about building direct air capture, I'm just talking about biomass. You know, we can plant a lot more trees, we can grow a lot more kelp, and we can grow some algae, and, and we can, you know, get rid of internal combustion engines, we can reduce our emissions from cars, from buildings, and so forth. So if we really um, put our will to it over the next 10 to 20 years, we could dramatically transform decarbonize the economy and also um, start to draw down greenhouse gases. It is unclear to me when and how we will develop the will to, to do all of that. Mm -hmm. Where do you see these changes coming from? Uh, you're a venture investor, which means you're investing in early stage private companies, companies in the private sector. But uh, from my understanding, a lot of this does come from government decisions. And there are governments that are more climate change active yeah. than others. No. We need collective action and, and we need government regulation here. Now, I think in the US, if you look at the state level, it's actually very encouraging. So even over the last four years, while at the national level, we've withdrawn from the Paris Accords and while the EPA and so forth have dialed back uh, a certain regulation, at the state level, there's been a lot of progress. There's now nine states in the US that have a 100% renewables mandate for the electric grid by 2050. Still not aggressive enough, but it's sure, a lot more aggressive than it was just a few years back. So now the question is, where does pressure on politics come from? And I believe pressure on politics comes from movements. And there are fortunately now some higher powered climate movements. There's Fridays for Future, there's the Sunrise Movement, there's Extinction Rebellion. And, and also there's more and more climate scientists who are speaking up. You know, scientists by nature are people who bring a lot of skepticism to every issue. That's what's required to be a scientist. You, you always need to question things. But what we've seen is that the more and more climate scientists have become very, very outspoken. So I think it's going to take young people like yourself and older people like myself all speaking up and saying this is an emergency, this is not a operate as normal, but also pointing out that this is an extraordinary opportunity. Like who wouldn't want to have a world of electric cars instead of gas guzzling cars? Who wouldn't want a world of heat pumps instead of a world of burning propane or oil? Who wouldn't want a world of materials made from plants instead of from fossil fuels? I mean, these are all beautiful things, and we can have them all 
And this false dichotomy between you can have economic growth, you can have this, that's just, that's just like saying it's the lockdown that's hurting the economy as opposed to saying it's the virus that's hurting the economy. You know, it's the climate crisis that's going to nuke everything and no economic growth will matter versus actually doing the right thing for the climate, which would actually result in a whole new world of jobs and a whole new world of technology that's just around the corner. So it's simultaneously the most scary thing in our world today and the most exciting thing at the same time. On your uh, blog continuations, you wrote this blog post titled Fighting the Climate Crisis is the Most Pro-Progress Program. You kind of mentioned this a little bit, but I think the real opportunity is framing this as not only a crisis, which it is, so you can't downplay that, but as an opportunity. Yeah. Talk more about that. Well, there's fundamental sort of technological breakthroughs that will allow us to have cleaner air. People don't realize this, but emissions kill people um, all over the world in large numbers. Also, of course, we use up a lot of land today, land that's not available for animals. Animals have been limited to ever smaller areas and zoos. Why? Because we use a lot of land, for example, to grow corn. What do we use the corn for? To feed cows so we can have meat. But we can grow meat in a lab. There's many companies around the world working on this, and that's incredibly exciting for many reasons. One reason being that I love to eat meat, but I would prefer my meat to come from a vat and not from a conscious being. And I'd rather have that conscious being be out in the meadows enjoying itself, you know, and living a good life. So we can free up a ton of land for animals, a ton of land for our own enjoyment. Like, you know, walking through you know, cornfield after cornfield after cornfield is not that interesting. Walking through a forest is absolutely fascinating. There's something new happening every corner you turn to. So with just a little bit of imagination, you can see how a world that is unshackled from fossil fuels and that uses solar and nuclear and possibly fusion to power everything electrically and a world that grows a lot of the things that we eat indoors in climate-controlled settings close to where they're consumed and that doesn't you know, kill lots of conscious animals to feed ourselves, that that's a beautiful world. And it's a world that I would love to live to see. We've touched on education, venture, climate. I figured we would wrap up starting with kind of where we began, which was uh, venture and COVID. So Union Square Ventures and yourself have quite high quality deal flow and you get a lot of it. And I'm curious how COVID has changed the type of investing you are doing and if COVID has changed the types of investments, your your perhaps thesis in, in, in any way. No, it really hasn't because we've been interested in direct-to-learner systems long before COVID and we were fortunate to have many of them in our portfolio that got a massive boost from this. We've been interested in telemedicine and cheaper access to healthcare for a long time. And that got a big boost. And what we call thesis 3.0, which is about the access to knowledge, capital and well-being, all those things are things that we had invested in before and that we're going to continue investing in after. Many of those things have been accelerated uh, by the crisis, but they haven't been transformed. So we have been sticking with what we were doing and we're going to continue to stick with it. I think that the primary change for us is that, you know, we used to pretty much meet most teams in person, although we did a few deals pre-COVID where we just had people come in over Zoom. And so, again, it wasn't something that we'd never done before, but it, we've certainly now done 
quite a few deals this year. I think we've done, you know, a deal or two every month for this entire year. And so, you know, we feel very comfortable now with that setup. And that's great because it, it's opened up a lot of kind of potentially, it opens up some new geographies that we historically might have stayed away from. Historically, we only did North America and Europe. Now I think we could potentially invest in other geographies. And it's also made it possible on our end to have more team members participate. So, yeah, it's just a Zoom call. So we now let anybody in the firm, you know, EAs included, participate if they want to listen to a pitch. Yeah, why not? What are your personal ambitions for the uh, the coming years? Well, you know, I think I've been writing this book, which everybody can find at worldaftercapital.org. And I'm pretty close to having an estate where I actually will make a print-on-demand version available also. It's a book about how we need to invent the new age after the industrial age. In the book, I call it the knowledge age. And so, you know, at the highest level, my personal ambition is to do my part in ushering in this knowledge age. And a big part of that is helping to fight the climate crisis because it's, as we talked about before, it is an existential threat. It's also a tremendous opportunity. And so the book talks about how we can free up human attention, human attention that can be directed towards learning and towards knowledge creation. And some of that knowledge creation and learning should be directed at the climate crisis. Albert, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for your time. Yeah, my pleasure. Great conversation. I really enjoyed it. That's Albert Wenger, one of the ones who succeed. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this show, it would be amazing if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us out. Or why not tell a friend that also helps new listeners discover the show? I really appreciate it. If you want to see clips from the show and stay up to date with what I'm working on, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Campbell J. Barron. And my YouTube channel is my name, Campbell Barron. You've made it to the end of the show. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Campbell Barron, and I'll be back in no time. <laughs>